Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. This is Mark from Ankeny, Iowa, and you're listening to The Talking Reef. Welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast, a weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. I'm your host, Rob Weatherly. Got a good show for you lined up this week. Uh, got an interview done by Jake Adams. Uh, this one is on coral spawning. Uh, we know we did one a little while back about some coral spawning research, and that was actually where we interviewed Jake on some of the research he had done down in Puerto Rico. For this show, uh, Jake is actually doing the interview with somebody that he's working with down in Puerto Rico also. This isn't exactly a beginner topic. It's some, get into, gets into some advanced stuff here. So uh, for those of you that are interested in that kind of stuff, make sure you stay tuned. Uh, I'm going to have a couple comments, and then we'll get into the interview. First thing I want to mention is a couple conferences and swaps coming up. We got another Down Under Frag Swap and the Midwest Marine Conference. Uh, the Mi- Down Under Frag Swap is in North Carolina, Midwest Marine Conference in Michigan. I'm going to talk about those in more detail after the interview, so make sure you stay tuned to that. Uh, at this point, we got a listener voicemail that I wanted to get aired and uh, get answered for Mark. Mark was the gentleman who did the little intro that we heard at the beginning of this episode. So I'm going to get his question played and answered real quick, and then we're going to move on. Hi, Rob. I currently have a shallow bed marine tank, and it's a marine reef, and I'd like to go with a deep bed on the bottom. Uh, is it all right just to take, I guess, purchase more Argonite sand? Is it? I think it's called Argonite Sand, or Crushed Coral, move the rock, and then make the dead the bed deeper. Mark, I want to thank you for that question uh, through the voicemail. I also wanted to let you know I did get your other voicemail. However, the email address that you left me wasn't very clear. I tried emailing what it, I thought it was, but it bounced back. So if you could send me an email at podcast at talkingreef.com, I'll work to take care of the other problem that you had. That being said, let's talk about your sand bed for a minute. Uh, this is a question that comes up frequently. Uh, it's a question that has come up a few times in the Talking Reef forums and has even been answered a few times in the Talking Reef forums with some good descriptions. Now, the best way to do this to convert your shallow sand bed into a deep sand bed is to actually take uh, your new sand, use a, a funnel of some kind and a hose is usually a really good way to do it. If you get some some of the larger diameter vi- vinyl tubing that fits right on the bottom of a funnel, uh, you're probably going to need a little bit of help doing it, but basically you just use that and you can kind of slowly pour the sand in without creating too much of a sandstorm inside your tank. Um, a couple things to keep in mind before you do this. If you have an established sand bed, you you really only want to do this. I, let me rephrase that. If you If your sand bed is not necessarily established, but if it's been around for a while, you want to be careful. You just do a little bit of a layer at a time. So you don't want to add, just go ahead and dump a whole another inch or two of of sand right on top of it Uh, because you're going to trap a whole bunch of stuff inside there. Uh, If you do have beneficial bacteria that is in there doing something for denitrification, you're going to kill it all. Uh, Can cause problems with cycle, can cause a mini cycle to happen, can cause ammonia spikes, depending on exactly what happens. Or worst case, you're just going to trap all that stuff inside there and uh, that's not necessarily good either. So uh, the best recommendation for you, as I mentioned, a funnel, a nice vinyl tubing, and uh, get some help, pour the sand in there, do it nice and slow. Don't do more than about a half of an inch at a time. 
You can do this over the course of a couple days and work yourself from there. All right, well, enough of me going on there. Uh, At this point, we're going to move on and turn the show over to Jake Adams, uh, who's going to present his interview. Hello, my name is Jake Adams, and I'm here in La Parguera, Puerto Rico. And joining me is Alina Smont uh, from the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. Thanks for joining me, Alina. You're welcome, Jake. It's a pleasure. Um, she is joining me today to discuss coral spawning. Uh, many people consider her the godmother of coral spawning in the Caribbean, and uh, she's very knowledgeable about the spawning efforts of many Atlantic stony corals. Um, to get started, can you tell me about how you got involved with coral spawning and uh, what got you interested? Well, during my doctoral work in Rhode Island with the cold water coral, I discovered that um, my little coral, Strangia danae, um, produced gametes, males and, and uh, females each released their eggs into, um, well, in, in that case, my little beakers that I was growing them in. And um, and I learned, and this was contrary to everything that I had been reading, that corals uh, reproduce by releasing fully formed larvae called planulae. And so after I finished my dissertation, I started looking for what I wanted to work on next. And um, actually, we're working in La Parguera right now, and I, I lived here during high school and college, and my first marine biology experiences were here. Um, so I became interested in coral reproduction in general because it's an important part of the biology. And my my first National Science Foundation project was to uh, look at the reproductive cycles. So I was down here collecting samples every two weeks throughout the year, trying to figure out uh, when the corals were reproductive. And of course, spawning is just the, the the little tip of the iceberg of the time of a coral's reproductive effort. You know, they they spend months, um, maybe some corals even over a year producing their eggs and sperm, and spawning is like 30 minutes or so, and then it's all over. Right. So um, it, the timing of that was important to figure out just because that's when you can move on to the next step of coral reproduction, which is the larval biology. Um, so prior to your um, beginning and working on this topic, um, it was believed that corals were mostly brooders. And can you explain the difference between brooders and broadcasters? Okay, um, most of the work that had been done on coral reproduction, even back in the 1800s and early 1900s, um, there was what's called the Carnegie Institute, and when Washington, D.C. had a laboratory in the the Tortugas, in the dry Tortugas, and in the early 1900s, um, scientists were working there, and they, they... pick up corals that release little larvae and they work with these things and they'd grow them and look at their, uh, you know, how fast they, they'd settle and grow and things like that. And the same thing in the Pacific, uh, they pick up a coral, stick it in a bucket. And, um, if it happened to release larvae, then they were reproductive and they worked with that. Um, it, so how do they maintain corals in the 1900s? You said these are early, Early studies, the Great Barrier Reef Expedition was in uh, 1928 to 30, something like that, two years. And um, they did histology on some corals, and they they worked with corals that they picked up and put in buckets. And 
Um, if they didn't release larvae, they were classified as being non-reproductive. <laughs> and some of them, some of them, they did histology, and you know what we know now because we've done reproductive cycles in some corals, is that um, in in those species that are dioecious, where the males and and females are in separate colonies, the females have a very different reproductive cycle than the males because it takes a lot more work, I guess, to make eggs. So, for example, Elkhorn coral cropper palmata starts making eggs in around November of the year, and then they'll be ready to spawn in August. Um, actually, that's I'm getting myself a little confused here. That's that's a hermaphroditic species. But let's say even in a hermaphrodite, the the eggs will start to develop in November and will be ripe in August. They don't start to make sperm until um, maybe July, right? June or July. So throughout much of the year, if a scientist is just taking coral samples, they're going to find females and no males. Mm-hmm. And they get confused. Right. And then if you have, like, Montaster cavernosa, uh, I guess that's the large star? Large polyp star. I'm not real. LPS. Yes, I'm, common names are not my forte. Anyway, there you have males and females. So, you know, throughout part of the year, you're sampling uh, corals, and you'll find some with some eggs in it, maybe under development, and you'll find others that have nothing. So unless you sample very systematically, when I did my work starting in 82, um, I sampled every two weeks throughout the whole year. Right. And, you know, that way you can really figure out when things are really starting and going downhill. And and when once I figured out that it was a summer reproductive season for most of the important species I was looking at, then we even sampled every week. And when I went to figure out the lunar cycle of Fabia fragrant little golf ball coral, I was sampling every three days. Right. So, you know, these cycles, if because if, that only has a 28-day lunar cycle for, for its spermatogenesis cycle. So you, you've discussed um, Montastria cavernosa, which is a broadcast spawner? Correct. And Fabia fragum. So what is the difference between those reproductive strategies? Okay. Yes, I'm sorry. To for, I forgot to answer that. Um Okay, so the majority of corals studied to date um, will release their gametes to the water column, um, either together in gamete bundles, you know, eggs and sperm mixed together if they're a hermaphroditic species, or if they're um, gonochoric, separate sexes. The, the males sometimes will spawn a little sooner, maybe half an hour or so sooner than, than the um, females. And the eggs and sperm basically mix in the water column. That's where the larvae... Uh, the embryos are fertilized, and the larvae develop free-floating in the water column. And that's called a broadcast spawner because they're broadcasting, like sowing your seeds. Right. Um, the brooders, the eggs are retained inside the polyps gastrovascular cavity, and the sperm are released. Um, and actually, I guess sperm released by, by brooders is not very showy because nobody's reported it that I know of. How does it um, get into, I guess? The, well, the sperm will just swim through the water column and, and I guess, enter the, the mouth mm-hmm. of, a, of, a, of a polyp. Right. Um, a few species have been found or suggested to be self-fertilizing. So, I mean, there is a possibility that the sperm could be retained and fertilize the same, you know, an egg in this, within the same colony. Um, but in any case... Um, those larvae are then fertilized inside the gastrovascular cavity, and they brood there for, depending on the species, several weeks, even over a year. Like melanophilia has been shown to, to brood for a very long period of time. 
And, um, and then once the larva is fully formed and generally ready to settle within possibly, you know, minutes or hours, um, then they, they just come out of the mouth or the tentacle tips or something like that. So those are called brooded because okay. the whole development occurs inside the polyps. And how do the, the planula resulting from these two um, strategies differ, or do they? Um, the planulae coming from the brooders are larger, and they are generally equipped with zooxanthellae. Mm-hmm. Um, so they get the same type, same strain from the parent? Correct. They should have the same strain that whatever strain the parent is, collect, is carrying. Um, the Most of the broadcast mining corals, the eggs do not have zooxanthellae. There are a couple of exceptions in the Pacific that have been reported. But most of them, um, the eggs are smaller. The larvae that result from them are smaller. Plus, the larva is floating around out there for, for a long time. You know, It could be um, a week or longer before it settles. So... Um, it uses up a lot of its lipid stores right. during that time, and they tend to be smaller. Um, and how do they um, acquire their zooxanthellae? Um, our experience is, is that they acquire them after they settle um, from zooxanthellae that must be working in the reef. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my experiments in my laboratory, I've grown larvae in filtered water and never um, had them become infected. But if you piece, put a, just a little small piece of rubble, in the in the aquarium or the bin where you're growing them, then they pick up the zooxanthellae from there. So, uh, I think the if you look at a at a piece of um, reef rubble, or chip a piece of reef off and look at it under the microscope, you see lots and lots of dinoflagellates just right. crawling around. Not all of them are going to be zooxanthellae, but always some of them are. So, um, do spawning corals have to be a certain size or a certain age to be mature? <laughs> Because the Fabio Fragum doesn't get bigger than a golf ball. Right. And they seem to become reproductive within probably a, couple, a year or two years, maybe three years. I don't know that anybody's really raised it from um, from planula to when it's first reproductive. But usually, with, I would guess just on the growth rate we've seen in the lab and reported by people at the Rotterdam Zoo, probably let's say two years. Um, based on the known growth rates of let's say the star, mountainous star coral, Cropera, I think Montastria, Fabulata, um, it's probably, I'm going to guess, at least 7 to 10 years old, maybe older than that, before it begins to reproduce. Um, I base my estimates of 7 to 10 years on the 1 centimeter per year growth rate. Mm-hmm. But now that we've been working with newly settled, you know, home-raised um, Montastria larvae and looking at how much they grow within one year, they're... They're nowhere near us. There may be a millimeter and a half after mm-hmm. a year. So it's going to take them a long time to even become one centimeter in diameter, and let alone to get to be a surface area of around 200 centimeters square, which I found to be sort of a minimum size for, for reproduction. And that would be in the, like a Montastria species? Yeah. What about um, Acropora palmata, a little faster-growing species? And that's fast, and that probably, I'm going to guess that reproduces sooner Um when I've tried to observe sizes of palmata that spawn during an actual spawn event, um, it seems like if the, if the colony is smaller than 30 centimeters in diameter, mm-hmm. it, it is, I have not seen it spawn. Right. But once they're bigger than that, then they'll, they'll, you'll see some spawn activity. Um, if, you, if you watch a cropper palmata as it spawns, the outer probably 5 to 10 centimeters of each branch 
you're mm-hmm. not spawned. Mm-hmm. So, and and the same is true for crop cervicornis, which um, that I've done by by sampling branches, you know, from the tip all the way down. Right. And the outer um, five to seven centimeters are not reproductive. Okay. Um, and when I, I did a transplant experiment a long time ago, where I, I made branches of different lengths and then looked to see which lengths were reproductive. And only the branches that were longer than 15 centimeters in length were reproductive. So if they're putting a lot of energy into very high growth, then you know there's only so much energy to go around, and they sort of bypass reproduction. Um, and they, once they get older, then the tissues mature, and they can start reproducing. You'll find this also in a lot of uh, a lot of the big boulder corals. If you uh, sample the outer five centimeters, about two inches of the of a colony, there there are no gametes there. Right. It's only. Do you think that might have to tie in with the growth rates since they started producing gametes? Because you said some of these eggs take you know on the order of months to um, to form. So it's possible that that outer five centimeters is newer than when they started producing those gametes. Do you think that's tied together? Well, I don't think so because I think you know the outer five centimeters of, a, of most of these slow-growing corals are going to be several years old. Right. And and in the Montastrias, it only takes uh, for Montastria fabulata, it only takes they start they have a very different strategy from some of the others. They start reproducing or forming eggs in let's say late April May. Mm-hmm. And they're very quick, so right. they make eggs from. Let's say May, and then they're spawning in August. In the lab, you've described the larval development as a freight train, right? Well, Montastra carinosa is really fast, yeah. They seem to move through all the developmental steps really quick. Um, You know, there's a a misconception out there. Just because you can become a mature planula quickly, that you settle quickly. Right. Um, What we found is that within any cohort of larvae, you have some larvae that reach some stage where they're ready to settle very quickly. Um, and then there are others that seem to just want to swim around, float around, and not go down and settle. Right. And that's true for both brooders and broadcasters. So I'm, I'm uh, working on this issue of coral connectivity now, how well connected are coral populations. And um, I see a lot of, I think, misconceptions in the literature where people attribute, like they find some larvae settling after three days and say, aha, these corals don't travel very far. They all settle really close to home. But if you look at their data, maybe 10% of their larvae are settling in this three-day period. Like and the rest of them, odds. Yeah, and the, and the rest of them are, you know, they didn't get settlement. Most people are getting 10% settlement within a short period of time. And then usually by then, you know, the laboratory culture doesn't work too well and a lot of the larvae die. We don't know what happens in nature. Maybe only 10% of all the eggs fertilized make it uh, just because of genetic defects and things like that. But there's a lot we still don't know. So now that we've got a, um, a bit of introductory material out of the way, I'd kind of like to um, discuss some of the things that we've done here in uh, Puerto Rico, starting with um, how we collected larvae and when. And so to begin, can you tell me what are the cues that trigger uh, coral spawning um, here and how that differs based on geography. Well, you know, we don't really know the cues. All we know is how we've learned how to predict it, which is based on lunar cycle. There's something associated with the lunar cycle, possibly moonlight, which of course um, is a very strong signal. If you're if you're a nighttime diver, you know, if you go out on a, on a new moon, it's very dark, and full moon, it's very bright. 
but we don't understand how the corals could sense this, you know, what cells they have and how this is translated into some kind of a synchronizing um, mechanism. But however the corals do it, whether it's by sensing the bright light or the, or the dark light or, you know, no light, or whether there's some kind of tidal force that they sense, somehow the reproductive cycle is highly synchronized to the point where we can, for some species, we can predict within a two-day period what nights of the year they're going to spawn. And some corals spawn multiple nights. Right. They um, Most of the corals that I've worked with will spawn two or three nights in a row. So when we say they only spawn once a year, yeah. mean, we mean, you know, I mean, the two or three nights once a year is still a pretty short period of time. Um, and in some years, that stretches out to be the same lunar timing, but two consecutive lunar periods, for example, August and September. Right. Um, in the Caribbean, which is what I'm the, the region I'm most familiar familiar with, we have earlier spawning in the northern Caribbean, like in Bermuda. It's there'll be like a July August spawning in Florida and down at least Puerto Rico. It's more like August September. In the lower Caribbean, it's like September October. So there is um, and there's a similar pattern of shifting. Of timing in the Great Barrier Reef also from, from the northern to the southern Great Barrier Reef. So um, there seems to be, you know, a shifting that may be related to how the the annual temperature cycle or annual photo period interacts with the lunar cycle. Um, as I said, we don't really know how the corals do right. this. Right, we just kind of know how to We just it. know, we just by, by observing year after year and writing it down and saying, hmm, okay, this is so many, you know, we, we've tied it to a lunar cycle and it fits. And so um, other corals aren't very tight. And we have a hard time with the Elkhorn coral. Um, it's a four or five day window. We have a much more difficult time pinning it down in yeah, some years. Yeah, we rink on night after night waiting yeah. for it to happen. Well, in some years we've been there, there night after night and we've never seen it. So we don't know whether they skipped it or they waited till after we left or, or what. The other thing that's pretty predictable for some species... Um, as we've learned more, is not just what night of the year, but what time of night. Oh, wow. And so for Montastria fabulata, it's not just that they'll spawn six to seven nights after the full moon, but they'll spawn three hours after sunset. So the way I try to describe this, or I think about this, is it's sort of like a Swiss watch with interlocking gears. You, know, you have big gears and medium gears and small gears. So you have an annual cycle, that's the big gear, which um, is either photo period, uh, because even even near the equator you do have a small change in, in day length, or the annual temperature cycle, um, and that's sort of driving, let's say, the onset of gametogenesis. Um, then you have the middle gear would be the lunar cycle, which sort of helps the animals fine tune with each other to be to pick the the same nights of the of the month when once they've already mature because if right. they spawn them every coral picks whatever night they want well then they and they need to cross fertilize well you're not going to get very much uh, reproductive success and then you have the, the tiniest little uh cog in the thing there is the little gear is the diurnal cycle the 24-hour cycle so how many hours after sunset or something like that which means they're all spawning during the same hour so it's complicated and you know to imagine these very simple little creatures have such highly synchronized chronometers in them is uh, so How amazing. do you know if um, spawning is imminent? 
And what does it look like when it's one that's going down? Um, the species we're working with, most of them package their gametes into these little bundles. Mm -hmm. um, they're like little membrane-wrapped bundles that contain most of the eggs and the sperm areas that are inside of an individual polyp. And they start um, puckering up their oral disc, and the little bundles form right underneath the oral disc. And, and because the eggs are pink-orangey, you start to see this little orange mass sort of forming underneath the mouth. Um, and then you, know, you start seeing whole sheets of colonies just with all the little bundles in the mouth, and all of a sudden they just start popping out. The nights that uh, we went out, you were telling us that occasionally that they get sucked back in, they kind of a false start. Yeah, we, you know, sometimes you think, aha, it's going to happen. You know, I'm sitting there with a magnifying glass of light and trying to see what's going to happen. And you sort of think you see stuff inside inside the polyps, uh, especially with Elkhorn coral. They're, they're, polyps are pretty tiny, so you're trying to link there and see if you can see anything. And, and you almost sort of see like something that might be forming, and then the bewitching time comes. And we know that for Florida, if by 1030 they haven't spawned, and I guess here in Puerto Rico, if by 930 they haven't spawned, well... I'm not going to do it that night. And so you see this, like, maybe practice run, like, possibly forming bundles. We, we don't know the mechanics behind formation of the bundles. The, the eggs and the sperm areas are embedded in their mesenterial tissues. And they have to, I guess, all the, the tissue holding, the connective tissue holding them in there has to dissolve away. And these mm -hmm. things have to come out. So you imagine there have to be enzymes released that sort of dissolve away some of the tissues. So these things are released. And then there's probably a lot of mucus in there, and it's somehow little tiny hands inside of them sort of package the whole thing up. <laughs> you know, how do they, maybe the mesenterial filaments, you know, work there to, to package it up so it comes out like a little bundle. Um, again, the mechanics of it are, are very curious. You know, how do they do this? And um, we don't know the details, but they do it. And, um, and that, that's the signs when we see these little bundles start to pop mm -hmm. out. So when spawning is imminent and we're ready to get these uh, bundles, or what? How do you collect the bundles? Can you um, explain what we did. Yeah, well, I'll explain what we normally do. This year, things didn't work as well. Right, or some um, other yeah. versions thereof. The way we've generally collected coral spawn is by we have conical uh, nets made out of just uh, cheap um, dress lining material. Um, and they're like large cones pointing up, and we put uh, little rubber um, cups or something at the at the pointy end. The egg bundles, the gamete bundles, when they come out, are are light because the eggs are full of fatty material, lipids, so they float up. And um, we put these cones snugly over the top of the coral, so that as the bundles are released, they gently float up into the coral cup. And then the diver can come along, pop the cup out of the net, stick a lid over it, and bring it back to the boat where we can work with it. Um, this year, we were working at a new spot for me uh, in Rincon here in Puerto Rico. Very shallow, very healthy-looking uh, elkhorn coral population. Um, very shallow. <laughs> and yeah. a lot of surge. And these nets of ours that have worked reliably for us for 10 years in the Florida Keys didn't work at all here. Everything kept going sideways instead of up. So... Uh, there was another group there, the C-Corp group, and they had plankton nets, and they just sort of towed them through the water and did a lot better than we did. But um, in general, the way we've done it and the way this year in, in Florida we collected um, star coral spawn was 
by putting these big conical nets over the mm -hmm. corals. And we've made some pretty large ones that are like three, four feet in diameter, so you can um, put it over a pretty sizable big star coral and collect a lot of spawn. So or one of the things I didn't get to see nearly as much as I would have liked is uh, once you collect these egg bundles, mm -hmm. what happens then and what do you do? You start to work your magic, you have all these little beakers. and Right. Well, the rush is to mix the bundles from multiple colonies together. These animals will not self-fertilize. And if they, if the bundles break up in a, in a cup with their own sperm and eggs only, um, the sperm are running around trying to figure out what to do, and they probably beat up their own eggs to death. Um, and uh, so it's very important to try, you know, in nature, the idea is that all of these animals release all these gametes and you, you end up with a gamete slick on the water and you, you saw that. I mean, you're right. swimming in a sea of caviar and so everything's all mixing there. So sperm can find eggs from other individuals. So that's what we're trying to do in the laboratory. We're trying to bring these cups back and, um, drain off the excess water so that we can have a concentrated mix of the of the of the bundles from various colonies, um, and allow the eggs and sperm from different colonies to to meet, fertilize, and start developing embryos. So once they fertilize, what are the uh, the stages that planula go to um, until they settle? They go through the normal embryonic stages. Um, if you look at them, let's say two hours after spawning, you'll start seeing two cell stages and four cell stages. Um, many of these tropical corals, maybe especially the ones that have a lot of uh, lipid in their eggs, start forming very irregular forms. That their blastulas, for example, are not are not textbook looking. They, um, I call them cornflakes. And matter of fact, the first year I worked with them, I thought they were that everything had gone bad, and I threw them away. And no, then no. I, yeah. <laughs> and then I, and I realized, uh oh, well, that's sort of they have this weird looking shape. But anyway, they, um, so they form these like almost like sheets of cells and then the sheets sort of round up and they form what looks like a normal looking blastula if you picked up your, you know, embryology textbook. Right. And then from there they develop to a gastria. That generally takes them about 24 to 48 hours depending on the species. So about two days to become About two days to become an early, very early, like a, like a gastrula, can just you, can, borderline. Can gastrula. you describe um, what a planula looks like? Um, a planula, they become, okay, a gastrula is a ciliated ball with two cell layers. That's by definition, and it has an oral pore, which is, um, and, and the planula is basically that ball starting to elongate. So you get a very early, you start getting a pear shape, and then eventually they become more sausage shape, um, and the cilia become uh, more formed, so they start swimming. In the beginning, they're just sort of twirl. And as they become more elongated and the cilia develop further, then they start having you know forward movement and moving usually towards away from the oral pore. They swim. <coughs> the then corals only have one opening. They only right. as opposed to higher animals that have you know a mouth and an anus. So um, the what the oral part is what we call the oral end, and the other end is the ab oral end. The aboral end is usually thicker and has more cilia, and that's the end that's going to sort of touch around the substrate eventually and decide where to settle. And that's right. the start that attaches to the substrate. So you talked about earlier, um, discussed uh, how some of these uh, larvae could last quite a while before they mm -hmm. settled. What is the, the trigger that uh, signifies to these larvae that it's time to settle and 
what is the synergy between um, uh, some of the grazers that you'll find in the substrates that larvae try to settle on? Well, there have been several published works that suggest that um, there are chemical cues associated with the substrate that um, that some corals uh, need in order to to choose a settlement attachment spot. Um, and in many of our uh, studies that I've done in my lab, we find that that's true, that if you just keep the larvae in uh, filtered seawater, they'll continue to swim along uh, for, for quite a while. And we've kept some species going, uh, like the star coral and the cropper um, palmata also, for you know three or four weeks without settling if we keep them in nice, clean, filtered seawater. However, um, if you want to, when we put them in little dishes and we put pieces of substrate with crustless coral and algae on it, they, they will, after a certain amount of development time, which can be four to six days, four to eight days, depending on the species, then they'll, they'll go down and they'll settle. Uh, or some of them will settle. As I said, some of them seem to want to take longer to settle. Um, so, I mean, I agree that there seems to be some chemical cues associated with crustless corallins that seems to be um, to induce settlement. However, every year we end up with at least some batches that decide to settle and attach with nothing there. Yeah. In our clean bins, and On they will attach to the to the plastic. PVC. And to yes, and we, and we we try to be very clean in our culture. I mean, we we transfer the larvae to clean containers and wash out the containers with fresh water, trying to prevent my buildup of microbial film. Part of this because we don't want to get bacteria and ciliates and things like that in our cultures because those can kill our larvae. But also because, you know, um, I don't, it appears that there are microbial films that also have the same inductive ability. And so just normal aging of your plastic, there'll be enough something growing there that will induce the larvae to settle. Um, this last couple of days, I just did an experiment with uh, some Favia fragum uh, golf ball coral larvae, and I, I was testing different things. And my control larvae, which were just in a well with just filtered seawater, settled uh, <laughs> same percentage as the ones that I had with little pieces of crustless corallins. Um, now, it's almost impossible to get larvae of Favia fragum without exposing them to some um, odor of crustless corallins because there's crustless corallins growing all over the adult coral. So I guess right. you'd have to <clears throat> very purposefully select a few fabias that and chip off every little bit of skirt around the little colony after you collect it to prevent it from, from having some crustless coral in, um, in, in the water in which the, the larvae release. And I haven't done that. But um, in any case, um, so, you know, there's, this is still an area that needs a lot more research. There's some Australian uh, workers that have um, isolated bacteria um, pure culture bacteria from, from surfaces across those corallins, and they get the same settlement activity with a pure bacterial culture mm -hmm. as they get with the crustless corallins. Um, other people are you know, trying to do extracts from crustless corallins and using very different chemical methods. And uh, I had a postdoc that was trying to do some of these chemical extracts, and she never got a reproducible result. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And so... Um, Still some time to go before right. I think we have this uh, story under control. So what is the, um, once the corals settle down, what is the survivorship and how important is grazing in the long-term survival? Um, well, corals grow very slowly and they're easily overgrown by algae 
um, as well as encrusting invertebrates. I mean, in in the settlement and post-settlement survivorship work I did in Florida, um, we found something very interesting. Um, about 80% of all the cultured larvae, and we, we've worked now with uh, four different species, three different species of Montasphia and a cropper palmata, they preferentially settle on the undersides of our field-conditioned settlement plates. In other words, if you take pieces of limestone and attach them to the reef on little posts so that there's an upward sun-facing side and then there's a downward, you know, to the reef-facing side, and you leave them out there for months, a year, you're going to get a very different coating of organisms growing on the upper sunlit side than you're going to get in the underside. And the underside has much more, as you might expect, encrusting invertebrates, you know, sponges, ascidians, there are crustal squirrels down there that are different species from the ones on the top. Um, you don't get a lot of macroalgae down there, but you do get little microalgae and sort of like microbial film, we call it. Most of our larvae preferred the undersides of these plates, and it, we did experiments where we altered the orientation of these plates. So it had nothing to do with whether they were facing up or down, and the, the larvae weren't necessarily crawling underneath things, uh, which is what you sometimes read in literature. They just attached to the, the substrate that was had been growing underneath. So, um, you know, you, it doesn't seem very adaptive if you're, if you're a coral, you want to grow out in the sunlight, you're, you're growing on the outer surface of the reef, not in little undersides, but maybe there are lots of little tiny undersides um, in the reef where the coral larvae get started, and then from there they grow out. Well, grazing has a major role in what grows on the upper and under surfaces of of these uh, of our plates and of the reef. The upper sides are going to be more grazed by large herbivores. Um, there's going to be different types of predators and grazers feeding on what's underneath. And I imagine if reef substrate is high enough above the bottom, you're going to, like, let's say little cavities and little caves and things like that, you're going to have very different type of community structure down there. So um, the more grazing you have, the more the less algae you have, but a lot of grazers also eat the coral. So we we think that, that the grazing is important because it increases the cover of crustose corallins. But if you're too highly grazed, the grazers may eat the juvenile corals. Because, or just damage them in the process. Or damage them. I mean, you know, a, a newly settled coral, these guys, is, is half a millimeter in diameter. You know, a parrotfish is not going to notice that. It's yeah, just right. going to be amongst the noise when it takes a bite of the, of the limestone. So that may be a reason that these uh, larvae are crawling in little interstices and little underplaces because um, in the our textbook view of what a what a perfect coral reef looks like, um, you know, it's there's no turf or anything in sight, and it's of course everything would be starving to death if that were the case. Right. But um, but and and it's that way because there's so much herbivory going on that the algae are kept in this uh, you know crustose coral and they're the only algae that can survive out there. Um, under that high grazing pressure, but um, and, and in fact, when you go to some parts of the world with a lot of coral cover, that's sort of what it looks like. I mean, there's you know there's coral, there's uh, small amounts of crustus coralline, and there's lots of grazing fish everywhere, um, and that's sort of a steady state mature reef system. Um, in the Caribbean, we don't have that anymore in very few places because. The fishes have been overfished. The the diadema died off, although here in Puerto Rico it's beginning to come back quite well. The nutrients are kind of high. The nutrients are, are kind of high in some areas. Um, at least that's the perception. There's certainly a lot of sediment in the water. Yeah. 
um, a lot of sedimentation and thick turf due to lack of grazing, accumulating the sediment. So the substrate is not optimal, but um, survivorship is very poor over the first 30 days is what we found, is that probably only 25% of the spats survived the first month of and that's life. under lab conditions, right? No, that's in the field. Oh, okay. We've, I mean, we can't, uh, I don't know that we can do a very worthwhile survivorship experiment in the laboratory because, I mean, what is it telling us? It tells us if we sit there and keep the coral in dim light and so that algae don't overgrow it, or if we sit there with tweezers and pluck away anything so that's around that it, what's it going to tell us? You know, yeah. you know, well, we can, that we can grow them, but it doesn't <laughs> tell us what's happening in, in the real world. So what we've done in the work in Puerto Rico last year and previous years in Florida is try to raise large numbers of larvae and then take these preconditioned limestone plates, bring them into the lab, settle the larvae on it. We map them very carefully I mean, to within, you know, a few tenths of a, of a centimeter to the location. And then we put these plates out in the real world and let happen whatever happens. And then we bring them back and re-examine the plates. And using our maps, we try to find every single spat um, and see which ones made it. Um, we're starting to make some headway in terms of the settlement preferences. And um, one thing we've learned is that there's no correlation between the number of spat you get settled on a plate and and how many of them survive. Right. You can have a settlement plate that only had six settled on them, and you may have a 50% of them, which could be three, yeah. survive. And you may have another plate that might have 400 settled on them, and you might get three survive. So there's a lot of just um, arbitrary survivorship, um, and we um, it just may be uh, just a very rough time for them this first month because they're so tiny. They get overgrown. They get eaten. Um whether they are able to find zooxanthellae in time to start getting some nourishment, uh, whether they are able to capture their first meal. Um, it's been fun to, when we map these things under the microscope, of course we have microscope light, and the microscope light attracts little tiny um, critters mm -hmm. to the beam. And um, we've watched the little tiny polyps catch little copepods and worms and things right. like that and try to swallow them. And so it occurs to me that as these larvae uh, start using up all their energy stores just swimming around, and then they have to make this very first skeletal cup. That's going to take a lot of energy. And then by then, they're sort of running out of gas. So if they're not strong enough and in a good place to capture that first meal, what's going to happen next? They're just going to sort of run out of oomph, and uh, you end up with little dead skeletal cups. So, well, I'm, uh, well, I'm thinking about it. A moment ago, mm -hmm. you described how 400 um, larvae are planning like a settle on one block Mm -hmm. um, and apparently in nature, oftentimes, they'll settle in really high densities. What happens when those individual um, spats grow into each other, and is that known? Um, well, I'm, we've observed this, and, and I know Bob Richmond in Guam has also observed that you get these aggregates of uh, planulae, and, um, you know, I've never, I haven't been able to follow them over very long periods of time, but over a few months, we've seen them fuse. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea what happens to the individual, you know, the cell types from the two genotypes. Um, unlikely that they came from the same, you know, mother and father when we have, you know, big masses spawn. So um, it's it's very interesting, and it raises a lot of questions in terms of, you know, if if this happens a lot in the wild, then what is the genotype of a lot of the colonies out there? Um, it may be that only one of the of the little 
polyp tissues survive and maybe occupies the skeleton of the other one, or maybe they form chimeras. I don't know. Can you describe what a chimera is? A chimera is, um, I guess it comes from the Greek, and it's when you have um, a mixture of cells from two from two lineages. Are there other organisms that show chimeras or develop like um, this? Or just unique to corals? No, I'm sure it's not, uh, because the term is not exclusive to corals. Um, but I'm, I'm afraid I'm not knowledgeable enough to answer oh, that okay. question in any detail. So what other kind of research depends on coral larvae for its projects? Well, the kind of things that, that I've been involved with, um, there's restoration work. Um, there's a lot of interest to, to see whether we can somehow rear large numbers of larvae that we could try to um, seed them onto larger areas of reef that have been damaged by ship groundings, hurricanes, uh, dredging projects, things of this kind. And uh, people in Australia have been working on that in the Philippines, and, and we're working with that on the Florida Keys, trying to make some headway in that direction. Um, another project that I'm involved with, uh, with several other co-PIs who are genomic specialists and, and, um, and Zosentheli specialists, Monica Medina from UC Merced, and uh, Marie Alice Kofroth from SUNY Buffalo, uh, we're trying to understand how the symbiosis is established. Um, you have a naive larval tissue that settles into a polyp. It's never seen a zooxanthella. Now um, its genes are functioning without zooxanthellae, and now a zooxanthella comes along and infects it. And what genes are turned on? How do they recognize each other? And how does the metabolism of each of these two um, organisms change? So um, I'm responsible for trying to establish the larval cultures that uh, we can infect with Mary Alice's um, zooxanthellae cultures, and then Monica is the genomics person trying to see what types of RNA, what genes are turned on and off by the process of infection. Um, and then there's you know basic biology of corals. Uh, what are the factors that affect post-settlement um, growth rates and, um, and and survivorship rates? There's the, the ecology of these things. You know the surrounding organisms, the the settlement cues. Um, in the project I'm involved with, with connectivity, we're trying to understand larval biology. Um, how does the developmental sequence of the you know, vary between species? How long are they in the plankton? When do they start swimming? When do they start swimming down? Because all of those um, behaviors will determine how far they can uh, go from one reef to another, their connectivity question, again. So um, these are all different types of uh, projects that depend on us being able to predict the spawn, capture the spawn, and raise larvae. <laughs> so the spawning is really, um, a lot of people get real enthralled with the spawnings. They want to go out diving and see it, and it is an incredible phenomenon. But for us, that's just the beginning right. of, of what we're doing. Yeah. Can you describe um, how you use fluorescence in your work? This has been a new tool that, um, that's been really a lot of fun. Uh, Charlie Mazel has been working with coral fluorescence for a long time. Time, since I guess the 80s and um, he got the idea that using fluorescence might be a way to help detect smaller um, re coral recruits so we've been working together for the last few years and he's been developing different types of um, blue lights and visors and contraptions to, to try to um, um, take advantage of the of the fluorescence of corals 
Um, many coral species, and not all of them, because some, some corals, like midraces, don't fluoresce at all, um, but, but many of the corals I'm working with happen to have this green fluorescent protein in their tissues, and so they, they're bright green when you excite them with blue light. And so if you have a microscope that you equip with the, with the right filters and with these blue lights, and you look at a settlement plate, for example, um, the little tiny corals, which are only a couple, you know, a couple hundred microns in diameter, will just glow out as your little green bulbs in this dark background. So it makes them much easier to find. Uh, often on our settlement plates, we have a lot of growth. So even though we're under a microscope, these things can crawl down into little crevices or be underneath a little piece of algae or something like that. And if you look at them with white light, you won't see them at all. So the fluorescence has really helped um, under the microscope. Now, Charlie is working hard to develop tools to do this in the field. And um, fluorescence, uh, for anybody that's done a, a blue fluorescence night dive, it's an incredible sight. You know, all the adult corals are, are glowing everywhere. Um, so the question is, can you can you use this to find little tiny fluorescent specks and, and detect um, newly settled corals? Um, we can find corals that are a couple polyps um, in size, like maybe one millimeter, two millimeters. And with magnifying glass, you can try to identify you know the mouth structure and septa, so you can tell that it's it's a coral. Unfortunately, there are a lot of other things that fluoresce other than corals. Um, there are sea anemones that fluoresce. There are um, hydroids. ascidians, hydroids. There's there's a, a polychaete worms, <laughs> and there are polychaete worms that live in little tubes that have little tentacle things that yeah. look just like a coral polyp. So it can it can be uh, it can be difficult to say. As you see at night, the really bright fluorescent thing there at night, you say, oh okay, is that a coral? Well, uh, Charlie's also working on developing an underwater microscope, and he's got some, oh, wow. he's got some prototypes, and they're really cool. They take two or three hands to operate right now, mm-hmm. and obviously you're not going to survey a very huge amount of reef with when you're looking at a microscope, right? <laughs> you know, a few millimeters in diameter. Um, but I've been testing this time some some different types of underwater blue lights that he's developed, and some magnifying glasses that that do help once you find a fluorescent speck, you know, to say, okay, I can see the polyp structure there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, to date, um, actual sexual reproduction in um, captive aquarium has been rare, and at best, some might say it's infrequent. Um, if an aquarist was trying to spawn corals in their own aquarium, um, what are some tips or pointers you think they should pay attention to? Well, I think that there are probably brooders that aquarists can get to, to um, release larvae, the, the you know, fully formed larvae in the aquaria. Uh, we have a culture set up back in Wilmington in, in nothing very special seawater system, and we have Favia reproducing there monthly. Um, I've, I know that in the Great Barrier Reef um, in Australia, they have a, a very large aquarium, and they have their corals spawning there. Um, those are huge aquaria with lots of water and, and rather large coral colonies. Some corals need to be quite large and, and mature before they're going to reproduce, and those you know, you, you're never going to get a Montasia to probably reproduce an aquarium unless you've got an awful big aquarium. Right, it's just not practical. It's just not practical. Um, little brooders like the like Pasilopora and Fabian, I guess, the, those you might get reproduction. I, I'm certainly no expert in, in aquarium reproduc- reproduction, but I would imagine you have to concentrate on species that have been shown to become reproductive at a small size um, because for practical reasons. And... Um, Try to keep them healthy. And corals, uh, we've learned the last few years with coral diseases and bleaching events and things like that, that 
when corals are not healthy, they won't reproduce. Right. And they, this year we did not get spawning of the star corals here in Flor in Puerto Rico because they're still um, affected by bleaching from last fall. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of sad. Was that bleaching, what, what induced <laughs> the bleaching for last year? Uh, extremely warm temperatures that sat over the whole region of here of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands for around three months. Mm-hmm. And the temperatures were um, one and a half to two degrees above normal for... Um, for the summertime high, right? Correct, for about 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. So the corals started to bleach around September, which was after the spawning last year. Last year we got a very good spawn from star coral. And soon after that they started to turn paper white. Mm. November and December they were still paper white. And um, probably about 50% of them died. And um, this year when we went out to, to try to collect spawn from them, well, I mean they were still really pale. Diseases have set in as well. So... Uh, it was not a pretty picture, and the, the corals looked pretty sad. And uh, there was a few dribbles of gametes from some little bits of tissue, but not mm. much. So, um, off the top of your head, what additional reading would you recommend for someone who wanted to know more about the topic of coral spawning? What are some? Uh, yeah. some... There's um, there's an excellent um, review of coral reproduction that might seem quite old now, but uh, it's still a great place to start. It's um, written by Harrison, Peter Harrison, and Cardin Wallace. It's in uh, Ecosystems of the World, Volume 25. <laughs> and it's, uh, I can't remember the number of the chapter. I think it's Chapter 16 or something like that. I'll check down those references yeah. and make them available. <clears throat> and it's, um, it's called Coral Reproduction. Mm-hmm. And it's about 80 pages long. And they start from scratch there and, de- and, de- and describe pretty much all of the data that were, was available at the time. Um, since then, there's not been any major review of, of coral reproduction. Uh, the journal Coral Reefs mm-hmm. uh, carries a lot of articles on reproduction of individual species. Um, I'd say most of the fundamental work is described in that 1990 um, issue of, um, of Ecosystems of the World right. chapter. And, um, and what we've learned since then has been refining the details um, the Caribbean has been worked on more since that chapter was published, so we have more information on spawning timing. Uh, the, the Australians got a head start on the Caribbean. They yeah. had a large number of people working together there in the early 80s, and so they, they made a lot of headway very quickly. And then those people who are students at the time sort of grew up into research scientists, so they've made a lot of progress. And, but there's a lot of people now interested in reproduction in the Caribbean, so I hope other people will follow after me. <laughs> And, uh, well, I think that's that's exhausted my questions for the moment. Do you have any closing statements you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, I guess not. I mean, I I think that uh, coral reproduction is 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 a really important topic now, probably more than it's ever been. With with coral reefs losing live coral cover uh, by leaps and bounds, you know, some some reefs here in the Caribbean have lost seventy five percent or more of their coral cover in the last ten twenty years. Um, there is going to be no recovery unless we have successful sexual reproduction. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be able to chop little corals, you know, big corals into little pieces and plant them every place in the world. So unless uh, corals can have natural reproductive success and re- rebuild their populations, um, coral reefs the way we knew them even when I was young are, are not going to be 
available to the next several generations of humans. Um, some of these corals take, you know, some of those coral communities are hundreds of years old. You just can't replace those overnight. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a very, very long time. It's pretty sad right now. So it, it can be very depressing, but I, I hope that I'm working on the, <laughs> on the optimistic side that if we learn more about all the details of coral reproduction and what, what makes those newly settled corals survive, you know, how can we help them? Is there, we know we have to clean up our water. We need, we need to stop coastal development and, and runoff and sediments from going into the, into the coastal zone. We need to stop overfishing our reefs. Uh, these are all things that are going to be necessary for, for corals to recover because they're one part of an ecosystem and they require the whole ecosystem to be healthy for them to, to make it. Mm-hmm. So um, young people of today, do something about it. <laughs> well, hopefully this, uh, this program will encourage and inspire some of our listeners. And um, Leah, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. And um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. All right, again, special thanks to Jake again for doing that show for us. A couple last things that I wanted to remind you, as noted, uh, the Down Under Frag Swap. The next Frag Swap at Down Under is going to be Saturday, January 30th at 3 p.m. There's going to be a Frag Swap, a frag swap food, drinks, the whole shot. For more information, visit DownUnderSaltWater.com or check out the local swaps and forums, uh, local swaps and meetings forum if I could talk right, at at TalkingReef.com. The next conference, uh, Midwest Marine Conference, is going to be held on Saturday, March 17th, starting at 9 a.m. at Weber's Inn in Ann Arbor, Michigan. This is open to everybody in Michigan and surrounding areas. Check out masm.org, and if you purchase your tickets tickets during the month of January, I believe you can save $10 on this conference. So make sure you head it out. We've got a, good, a couple good sp- uh, talk speakers that are going to be talking at this conference. A lot of cool stuff going on, so make sure you check that one out. Again, visit masm.org for more information, or again, head over to TalkingReef.com, check out the local swap and meetings forum there and you can catch some more details there and links back over to all their websites that's going to wrap up the show for this week uh, make sure you keep tuned in for the upcoming salt uh, seahorse show we've got a great uh, diy video coming up in the future uh, the seahorse stuff is coming along good we've already started recording that series so we should be getting those out shortly Um, That's going to do it for this week. If you have introductions like you heard today, questions like you heard today, or any other comments or anything like that, uh, call in and leave a message on the voicemail line. Uh, The number is 586-486-3357. You can use Skype. The screen name is Talking Reef. Or just head over to TalkingReef.com website. Over on the left-hand side, there's a blue box. You can just hit the record button and leave your message there. So that's going to wrap it up. I will talk to you all next week. Thanks.